0: to Old Man Sailing. This is John Passmore, and let me tell you about the Sunk Traffic Separation Scheme and other adventures. It was a great idea. I even sent the family WhatsApp group a message saying that I would set out at dawn the next day, instead of starting the voyage with a rainy night. Well, I didn't have a drop of rain... The plan was to sail from Walton on the east coast to Chichester on the south coast, a distance of some 150 miles, which I reckoned to do in not much more than 24 hours, especially if I could catch the tide all the way across the Thames estuary, like I did on the way up last year. In the event, it took me 58 hours, that's nearly two and a half days. Mind you, it was great. I loved every minute of it. The first excitement was experimenting with Samsara's downwind rig. This is something innovative and was contrived by her fastidious previous owner, who made such a success of refitting a cabin. Since downwind to him meant trade wind sailing. He dispensed with silly contraptions like spinnakers, and wrote a careful explanation of how to rig the staysail on the inner forestay, with the sheet led through a snatch-block on the end of the boom, which was hauled forward with the preventer. Uh, The main could then be furled. After that, with the furling jib on the end of the spinnaker boom, the two headsails could be adjusted without leaving the cockpit." That may be so, and I'm sure it's very useful when shortening sail as a rain squall creeps up on you in the middle of the night, a jet black night, on the way to Antigua. However, to arrive at this happy position requires setting up all those control lines. Uh, Don't worry, the fastidious previous owner had drawn them all out and left a copy in the file. Uh, This showed a lot of string. And don't forget the footnote about uphauls not shown. I studied this diagram and looked at a lot of YouTube videos and finally decided that if the staysail was going on the end of the main boom, it had to be the main boom because the diagram showed the topping lift was used as the uphaul. Then why did I need a spinnaker pole and a whisker pole? Yes, I had both of them cluttering up the foredeck. And with a bit of measuring, or at least as best I could do with the boat out of the water, I decided that the spinnaker pole was left over from the days when the boat carried a spinnaker. And, in fact, the whisker pole was what was used for this particular rig. So the spinnaker pole went into the shed at home. And now I had a chance to try the rig on the way along the suggested yacht track, as the approaches out of Felixstowe are called, and the first thing I learned was that because the main boom cannot be brought forward of the shrouds, if there is a wind shift, then the whole shebang has to be dismantled and set up again. It cannot be jibed. I did this. I may get better with practice, but just now it represents a serious flaw. What it needs is both the headsails to be on their own booms, whisker-pole for the staysail, and the longer spinnaker-pole for the furling headsail. In other words, what I need is a spinnaker-pole on the foredeck, not in the shed. Never mind, the wind gave up an exasperation. From the afternoon into the evening, progress became more and more sporadic, until at one point I was reduced to starting the engine to avoid a cargo ship that seemed intent on stalking me through the sunk traffic separation scheme. I've just realised how odd that sounds. In the end, just when I should have been looking up the pilotage notes for entering Chichester, I found a quiet spot down tide of the Thanet wind farm, and dropped all sail to get some serious sleep—in short snatches, of course. It wasn't until four o'clock in the morning that I poked my head out of the hatch to look around and felt the faintest stirrings of a breeze. That was enough. Stumbling around in the pitch-black night with a head torch, I set about rigging the temporary forestay for the Genoa, and some time later we were on our way at a sedate two knots. What I didn't appreciate at the time was that this was going to turn into my best days sailing with this boat. The wind built and built, as if trying to get back into my good books after yesterday. The Genoa went below with a glow of pride for a job well done, and we continued south under all plain sail with six and a half knots on the log, which I have learned is no more than respectable for samsara. Of course, I had no idea that this was just the beginning. By the time we were picking our way through the ferries off Dover, the average was well over seven knots with bursts of up to eight. The GPS showed the speed over the ground at nine and a half. Best of all, the shape of a rival hull makes the most of her speed, that big, powerful bow shoulders the seas out of the way in the manner of a prop forward making for the bar after winning the league. The result is a great creaming bow wave and a weight that seems to stretch all the way to the horizon. Owners of modern boats will sniff at this, particularly those with multihulls. Their argument is, do you want to make a lot of waves or do you want to go fast? Because there is no doubt for a boat to go fast she needs to cause as little disturbance as possible to the sea. But where's the fun in that? So we were belting along the south coast, Dover, Hastings, Brighton, and pretty soon I was needing to look up the pilotage notes for Chichester. It wasn't as simple as I remembered. In fact, you have a, f- a four-hour window about high water to get in at all. Also it turned out that we weren't going as fast any more and dusk was approaching, and with it that characteristic calm, the self-steering unable to cope, the inadvertent tax, this sails slatting. It costs seventy pounds to fill Samsara's diesel tank, and I don't motor anywhere if I don't have to. Down came the sails again, and somewhere off Selsey Bill I sat down to the other half of the putanesca sauce which had been such a success with the spaghetti off Thanet. Later, as the sun came up and with it the breeze, we set off with a certain sense of resignation for that four hour window into Chichester. Obviously it's going to take me some time to get flexible. Maybe it comes from a lifetime of fitting sailing into a working life, having to get the boat back on her mooring in time to return to the office tomorrow morning. But that doesn't apply anymore. The reason for Chichester was because I needed to take the life raft to be serviced in Southampton, and you can anchor for nothing in Chichester Harbour. So, when I picked up a mobile signal and rang Ocean Safety to book it in, Sometime over the next three weeks, I was going to suggest. "'I would be around that Solent for that long, "'what with Hugo, my fifteen-year-old, joining me, "'and having to go home to take our turn at hosting the wine club. "'You want it done in the next three weeks?' said the voice on the other end. "'Not at all the same ones which had suggested so airily, "'Oh, bring it along, we'll do it while you wait.' Eventually we managed to agree an appointment in early June, but, foolishly, it was only at this stage that I asked how much it would cost. 450 pounds! Although I am pleased to say that a lifetime of listening to people voicing the preposterous allowed me to keep the exclamation mark out of my reply. The budget just does not allow for routine payments of £450, and besides, the service isn't due until July, and anyway, who keeps the certificate up to date if they aren't required to by law? Charter companies, or if they're about to be scrutinised for a race. Besides, I am old enough to remember setting off across the North Sea, five of us in a wooden folk boat, knowing that if we were to sink... The first resort was a very serious bilge pump Father had installed, and the second was a tiny plywood dinghy lashed to the coach roof. We would have lasted five minutes in a force three. So the life raft is not going to be serviced, and besides, the wind and tide seemed determined to keep me away from Chichester. I put the helm down and headed west into the Solent, periodically looking up anchorages protected from the northeast. So that's why it wasn't until three in the afternoon that I dropped the hook off or Point on the river Bewley. I've seen boats anchored here before, rather than go up to the teeming metropolis of Buckler's Hard, although I'm a bit startled to read that the owners of this private river, presumably the estate of the late Lord Montague of Bewley, reserve the right to come and charge me ten pounds. I just hope they don't read this. That would be making me feel as foolish as the drug dealer who advertises wares on Facebook, without realising he had a friend who was a policeman. Anyway, I'm off tomorrow for Poole, where Pool Key Boathaven will charge me only three pounds if I don't stop for more than four hours while I pick up some fresh supplies, fill the water tanks, and buy a new joker valve for the loo before Hugo arrives. It's taken me this long to find the sea-cock by feel. I feel that if I inflict the same on him, he will never want to come back. Silence. The mother of all brooches played out to the accompaniment of Maurice Chevalier singing Thank Heaven for Little Girls. It happened somewhere off the Grand Banks during the 1988 single-handed transatlantic race. I was having a clear-out recently, and found the article I wrote for Yachting World. That was in the days when you cut two enormous holes in the cockpit and plumbed in a pair of waterproof speakers. Then there was the Motorola radio cassette player, and, of course, the box of cassettes. How do you choose thirty tapes to take with you across the Atlantic? At least with Desert Island Discs, it's not real. And if you can't live without just eight records, you can always listen to the rest when you get home. Now we have Spotify, with every piece of music ever recorded, and a tiny waterproof speaker which doesn't need any wires at all, and demonstrates the fact by flying from one side of the cockpit to the other where it bounces, still happily churning out Willie Nelson although it was Bob Dylan's like a rolling stone that was on as we emerged from the casquette's traffic separation scheme, the jenny drawing nicely in the light northeasterly. If the GPS had calculated correctly, we should reach Torquay by dusk. Frankly, I didn't care if we did or we didn't. I could stay out here indefinitely. There is nothing absolutely nothing more pleasing than doing five knots over a flat sea with the boat not even rocking. It's as if there's no resistance and the momentum just builds and builds until the wind and the sails and the hull and the water reach a sort of equilibrium which will continue forever, unless, that is, uh, one component or another falls out of balance. In fact, It was thinking just this, as I watched the white water zipping past the cockpit, that I realised there was one thing missing. The sound. The sound of rushing water. Not the crash and surge of a boat charging over breaking waves, but the smooth, subdued hiss as she slips along, as if there's no effort in it at all. Except, of course, I couldn't hear the hiss. Just Bob Dylan. I turned him off, and that was the beginning of a magical twelve hours when the middle of the English Channel might have been the Atlantic's central abyssal plain or some other lost and unvisited corner of the Greenland Strait. Because gradually the light northeasterly died away. Speed dropped off, and with it all sound, until Samsara was moving, apparently without any propulsion at all, at a knot and a half. The sails hung in their aerofoil shapes, apparently with no air to hold them there. It was like perpetual motion, except of course there is no such thing, and sure enough the knot and a half dropped to one knot, and then half a knot. And eventually the aries vane gear could no longer cope, and we turned in a dignified half-circle and stopped It was now dusk when I should have been arriving at Torquay, but instead I furled the sails and allowed the boat to drift with the tide. Taking the good glass from its own locker in the galley and a cold beer from the bilges, I sat in the cockpit and listened to the silence. And this was real silence, the kind that If you concentrate very hard, you can hear a sound in your ears which is really the nerve endings straining to do their best but giving up and reporting nothing received. The AIS was receiving OK. The plots showed that in fact we had no other human activity within seven miles as the little green triangles followed each other in an orderly queue down their westbound lane. It was only later, poking my head up through the hatch in the middle of frying onions, that I realised this time there was a sound, a deep, almost imperceptible throb. The engine of a big ship. The sound which, reverberating out of a fog bank, used to fill me with such terror. Now the AIS showed me exactly where he was even that he was the Maersk Santos, 390 metres overall, and carrying dangerous cargo, harmful substances, or marine pollutants, Category B, and heading for Newark at 23.5 knots. His RAIM, I can report, was not in use, but I don't know whether this is helpful or not. What I do know is that on an evening like that, you can hear a ship's engine at a range of five miles. I listened to him until the sound faded to nothing. Of course, real life reasserted itself eventually, and about three in the morning there appeared to be a bit of a breeze, but I didn't trust it until it had put in some effort and showed that it could still be blowing at four o'clock. So, I am writing this, in Meadfoot Bay, outside Torquay. I don't need to pay harbour dues until tomorrow. And the little rubber speaker is playing Humphrey Littleton's Bad Penny Blues. The good glass is out again, and there's the other half of last night's putanesca sauce. In fact, under the influence of proper jazz and very small bottle of wine, which is even now reaching cabin temperature, heat are going gently because May is not really summer. I might even get out the clarinet and play the sundown. After all, I'm the only one here. One of the more stupid things you can do on a boat is put your hand out to try and stop the mainsheet traveller from slamming from one side of the boat to the other. And this is precisely what I did. I don't know if you've seen the beginning of that film, Saving Private Ryan, where the man picks up his arm and there's a great flap of skin hanging from his shoulder. It was a bit like that. Well, I'm exaggerating, of course, but there was a rather ugly L-shaped flap of skin hanging off the back of my hand. That was three days ago, I think, and I've just peeked under the bandage, and it's all but healed. Now, I put this down to my minerals, my supplement. And of course if you're out on your own for any length of time this is really important stuff. So do have a look at the blog TheOldManSailing.com where you will find a Good Health page and you can read all about it on there. Meanwhile I call this one Lost at Sea. Bosham Channel in Chichester Harbour after the pub shut Sometime in 1934. A young man in an enormous clinker dinghy rode backwards and forwards in the pitch darkness looking for his boat. The young man was my father, and this was a story that was told and retold so that it became the stuff of family legend. He had set a riding light on the forestay so he could find his way back, but the light had blown out, as they did in those days. In the end, out of exhaustion and befuddled by an evening of beer, he gave up and climbed onto somebody else's boat, slept aboard, found some sausages for breakfast, left everything neat and tidy with a note expressing his gratitude and sixpence for the sausages. The moral was always to go ashore with a compass and take a bearing from the quay. That way if darkness or fog came down, you could always row along the back-bearing until you found your way home. Swanage, eighty years later, and not much has changed. Samsara is anchored in the bay, and the crew, a full crew on this occasion, with Number Five's son, Hugo, currently occupying the other bunk, we decided to go ashore and explore. There is a slipway for the dinghy, and after a while the sun comes out to help this rather faded seaside town show off its best. A little shopping, a visit to the museum and heritage centre, and a go on the antique what-the-butler-saw machine, and a little excitement absorbed from the prospect of the town finally rebuilding its Albert memorial to celebrate the bicentenary of the prince's birth now it is time to return to the boat wait a minute what boat there is not a single yacht to be seen in the bay just a uniform veil of gray the fog has descended and visibility is no more than 50 meters a number five son, is full of confidence of course we'll find her we just putter backwards and forwards until we see her the skipper is already seeing the next day's headline, Fool-hardy pair lost at sea, search abandoned for fog-bound father and son. This is just the sort of situation that could turn into a tragedy. Unable to tell which way is back, they motor in circles until the outboard runs out of fuel feebly they row in what seems like the right direction, only to be whisked by the tide out of the bay and into the path of the high-speed ferry. It was there only that morning on the AIS, doing 32 knots. But what you need in this situation is a 15-year-old mind and a mobile phone. The AIS had only been switched off as we came ashore. Any ship-tracking app would still hold that plot for the vessel's last known position. All that it needed is for one man to log in to find ship, look up the destination vessel, and navigate the you-are-here icon until the two meet at the same spot. Then, with one to call out directions and the other to steer, Well, except that in this case the one calling out directions kept saying, I'm sure this isn't right. There's a moored boat there, which I can't remember seeing before. No, go over this way a bit more. But, sure enough, eventually, after a lot of left a bit, right a bit, Sam Sara appeared out of the murk, dead on the nose, at a range of certainly no more than fifty metres. Told you so, said the man at the helm. His grandfather would have been proud of him. The bear. It all started with the geraniums. I was about to begin a 1,200 mile race and somebody gave me a geranium. Now, this may not seem particularly sensible, but it was a nice thought. Something homely. Something that I could love and nurture. It should be noted at this point that the donor was not a sailor, and certainly not another competitor in the race, but, being the only one taking a houseplant, I achieved a certain notoriety, especially considering that the geranium, carefully nurtured in the bookshelf, made it to the finish. The following year, when the race was 2,400 miles, another well-wisher decided it would be a fine thing to keep the tradition going, and presented me with two geraniums. The bookshelf being full of books, this time the extra crew were lashed onto the backstay like mutineers. Uh, They didn't make it past the first gale. I have never really been sentimental about ships' mascots. I don't give a name to the self-steering. There is no gnome in the cockpit, as Bill Perks always used to carry aboard Sherpa Bill, But now, of all things, I have a teddy bear. It wasn't my idea. Last autumn I called into Brixham and met my sister, who lives in Exeter, and we had a good catch-up, and then she produced the bear. Apparently our mother had bought it for our father a few days before he died, and now she was giving it to me. Obviously I couldn't just throw it away, nor could I refuse it, so instead I made appreciative noises and, as soon as she had gone, banished the bear to the forecastle with all the sails and the folding bicycle and what not. And there he stayed, unloved and ignored. And I'm sure my father would have understood he was not sentimental either. But also he would have understood that I couldn't just dump the thing. I mean, one day my sister might come back and ask about the bear. And now, down in the West Country once more, and due to meet her for lunch again, the bear came to mind. I would have to get him out. Apparently they do this at Buckingham Palace. There is a flunky whose prime responsibility is to see that any visiting potentate will find their gifts prominently displayed and Her Majesty fully versed in their history. Me? I just got the bear out and jammed it in a convenient space at the chart-table. And there he sits, looking over my shoulder. And I hate to say this, but since he's been there, we have had no major disasters. Unlike the months of his exile, when, as follows of this blog, will be aware, not everything went according to plan. Now, I don't want to talk to him. He, He hasn't got a name. And if anyone remarks on him, I am disparaging and explain that he's only really there because of family history and nothing to do with me. All the same, if we should avoid any more disasters and I'm allowed to dismiss him as someone else's sentimental notion, he can stay. In the past I've mentioned my network marketing business and the company provides an app for your phone and they're always updating this and they've now got a page where you can see how much they've paid you over the years. And I was so astonished to find that it was more than half a million pounds. Anyway, I've taken a screenshot of the app and I've posted this on the money page of the blog, the oldmansailing.com blog, so do go have a look. Uh, You may be as astonished as I am. Meanwhile this is rather appropriate because just after writing about the geraniums uh, I discover the full version which is a chapter in the book uh, The Good Stuff, book one and the chapter is called Hats, Turnips and Geraniums. There is a little-known law of physics which states that the wind acting on a peaked cap shall increase by the square of the speed at which the wearer makes a grab for it. It is called Passmore's first law of lots hats, and it came into play 400 miles southwest of Ushant during the 1970, I beg your pardon 1987, Henry Lloyd Azores and back race. The sponsor gets a mention there because it was the sponsor's hat, or to be more precise, a sun visor with Henry Lloyd active sportswear written on it, and a blue plastic peak so enormous that it had to be jibed with both hands in anything more than a force two? But it did have one very practical use. It was ideal for keeping spray off the spectacles, as I lay on the windward deck reading Frederick Forsyth. Quite what I was doing, lying in the sun reading thrillers in the middle of a race, is something the competition with their water ballast and running backstays, found difficult to understand. But Largo is a rival 32, and different values apply, rather as they did when the sun visor leapt nimbly over the side. I went back for it. Well, I'd become very attached to it, and obviously it wasn't going to sink, and, anyway, how was I to know it would keep slipping off the boat hook and I'd have to take three goes at picking it up. People don't appreciate the problems we single-handed racing sailors have to face. There's a similarly good explanation for the reason I'd turned round after three days and started sailing back towards the start. This time it was Mrs. Thatcher's fault. I had been listening to her on Radio Four's final election call, and great fun it was too, being little more than institutionalised heckling. I hardly noticed the invective fading as the battery died. Normally, of course, I would have switched over, started the engine, and charged up both batteries, but then, of course, I wouldn't have been able to hear how Sir Robin Day dealt with the man from Macclesfield who had such strong views on the economy. Besides, the little car radio cassette player hardly used much electricity. How was I supposed to know I'd left the navigation lights on, and the engine inspection light and the compass light as well? By the time Mrs. T had sorted out unemployment, the bomb, her inner cities and privatisation, and I turned the key, I was rewarded with a soft click from the starter motor, and then nothing. But did I curse and fret? Did I face the prospect of nine hundred miles with no electricity? Not a bit of it. I was prepared. I had a wind generator. I looked up to the top of the pole where it turned lethargically in an apparent wind reduced almost to nothing by Lagos four knots to the southwest. I could count the blades as they went round. The batteries weren't getting so much as a milliamp. Never mind the wind would change. The wind had better change. I didn't want to miss the results the following night. But at 1700 the next day the wind was Force 3 from the north, and not only was I facing the prospect of a second night of hanging a hurricane lamp in the rigging and yawning a lot, but there would be no election results unless I fancied the prospect of spending the night plugged into the Seafix headphones. It was time for drastic measures. Something had to be done to increase the apparent wind. That was how I came to turn round and sail back in the direction of Falmouth for three hours. And it wasn't only Peaked Caps and Mrs Thatcher who held us up. Look what happened at the start. First of all, Radio Cornwall informed the country that we were off on a 12,000-mile race, and then the Met Office's south-westerly 4-6, occasionally gale 8, left me in a state of such apprehension that I spent more time trying to stay as far away as possible from all the other competitors than I did trying to get near the starting line. And then the new headstall furling gear turned itself back to front, uh, no, I'm not going to mention which make it is, because I'm sure that somehow it's my fault, and I've had nothing but trouble with it ever since I got it. But the fact is that it didn't work when it was brand new. It stopped working a week before the start, and three days into the race, the fitting at the top turned round and jammed the spinnaker halyard. This could have been solved almost at once by a quick trip up the mast, but as I said to myself. I'd have to take the sail off, and that would slow us down, which wouldn't do at all. It's not as if I mind going up the mast, not at all. I'd spent most of the week in Falmouth up there, and I'm sure some of the Tories thought I must be some sort of a fixture. But, given the choice, and with the boat rolling through twenty degrees, and particularly with no one around to call me chicken, I decided I'd rather keep my feet on the deck. Besides. With twin headsails, we were still doing five knots. Excuses like that, of course, are only good until the wind dies. By the time the log line was hanging straight up and down, I was reduced to huffing around the boat saying things like, If Naomi James can climb the mast in the Southern Ocean. Of course, Naomi James had steps up the mast. I didn't. Worse still, I had a block and tackle that wasn't quite long enough to reach the deck. It had worked well enough in Falmouth, where I developed a system using one hand to hold the block upright and the other for clipping the boatswain's chair to it. Observant readers will notice this does not leave a hand for holding on, which, uh, in the mooring off the Royal Cornwall Yacht Club, did not seem to matter too much. In a four-foot Atlantic swell, it suddenly became a matter of the most pressing importance. By the time I had slid down the mast, impaled a delicate part of my anatomy on the key for the spinnaker ring, comparisons with Naomi James began to give way to reminders that I was supposed to be doing this for fun and that the medical kit lacked anything in the way of serious painkillers. So Dr McGuinness gets the blame for Largo spending five days of tailwinds without a spinnaker. He had been adamant. I'd gone to see him armed with a list of suggested drugs. Some of them sounded really exciting, and came in ampules, But all Dr McGuinness wrote was a prescription for boring old antibiotics. "'You can get paracetamol over the counter,' he said, scribbling. "'Well, that's not going to be enough. What if I break a wrist or something? Then you take your paracetamol and remind yourself you're British.' "'Oh, great.' a doctor from the boys' own school of medicine. By gad, Carruthers, I've lost me leg. No, you haven't, sir, it's over here. I could see it all, 700 miles from the nearest hospital. It wouldn't seem so funny. Of course, John Elliot on Shokey, the first 30, managed the situation much better. Not only did he retrieve his spinnaker halyard by going up the mast on his Jumar mountaineering gear, but having led it the wrong way through the masthead diamond, he managed to resolve the situation without going up again. He described his solution one night in Ponta Delgada, as if it was an exercise he might get the students of his Scottish sailing school to undergo. I reckoned that if I attached a weight to the halyard, I could hoist it up, wait until it swung the right side of the wire and then let it down. The problem lay in finding something heavy enough, but at the same time something that wouldn't demolish the mast or go smashing through the sails. A turnip turned out to be ideal. Sailing instructors based on the Clyde carried turnips as essential equipment, apparently, thus lending a completely new slant to H. L. Tillman's advice never to set foot on a boat without an onion. Still. Even if I never did get up the mast, the five days were still quite something. After we had logged 137 miles in 24 hours, I took it to standing in the companionway making eha ha noises, like a western stagecoach driver as we charged down the Atlantic rollers, with Arnold the Aries working overtime and the wake stretching brilliant white, seemingly all the way to the horizon. By this stage, of course, I'd stopped worrying about the race and was feeling mightily contented. I even wrote an account of the daily round in the logbook as if it was some sort of guide to the meaning of life. It goes like this. Uh, A couple of extra 40-minute kips after I should really have got up, I decided 40 minutes, is not too long in this superb visibility. Then breakfast is either muesli or a boiled egg then lovely fresh bread and fresh coffee, and then there's the morning sight, uh, trying to get the azimuth as near as possible to 90 degrees for longitude, Uh, hot chocolate and digestives at mid-morning, then feed the animals, that's a drop of oil for the Aries and maybe the log. The noon sight usually comes before lunch, since I try to arrange meals late so that dinner arrives close to midnight by cutting down the time I'm asleep at darkness. Lunch is packet soup and sandwiches, and then tea with bread and jam. If I make the bread in the afternoon, I get it still warm from the oven. Finally, I ward myself a whisky before dinner, and then bed at around one o'clock in the morning, or two o'clock, with the alarm clock in the corner of the bunk and set for forty minutes. One way and another I do have a lot of spare time, since I'm not steering when the wind is steady as it is today. There's little to do but read a bit, occasionally work out where we are and how far there is to go, and then spend the rest of the time sitting in the sun, watching over the boat. It's not unpleasant and has the added advantage that I can spot things which are not as they should be before something nasty happens. By the time I started getting near the Azores, I'd reached a rather unnecessary state of mind where I wanted to make the landfall using just the sextant and without checking the RDF beacons. Silly, really. When the light on Ponta del Arnel showed up just after dusk, I was five miles further east than I need have been. But there's nothing like the presence of other boats to revive the competitive spirit. Aphrodite, the moody thirty-nine, was just ahead. I could hear them on the VHF, constantly revising their ETA as they sat becalmed off the south coast, and then Aphrodite's crew were rather unusual in racing circles, A, a pair of surgeons from the Hamble. They had a pet geranium, and after the first week they changed into dinner jackets and opened champagne for the captain's cocktail party. I crept up on them in the night. I was woken by the watchman beeping a warning. I looked round, flat calm, but no ship. The microchips do that sometimes. Five minutes later, they were beeping with a regularity that brooked no argument. I got the binoculars out, and there, straight out of the rising sun, came a freighter with masts in line and a bow wave that could swamp a lifeboat. I began to feel concerned. The batteries were flat again. I couldn't even motor out of the way. When she was about four hundred yards away and still coming straight for me, I decided it was time to feel frightened. I jumped below and called him up on VHF, hoping the last gasp of the batteries would be enough to transmit at least a watt. Uh, No response. I grabbed the foghorn and a life jacket as well. As I passed the chart table on the way back, Aphrodite called up, all chatty with morning freshness. "'Can't talk now,' I said, snatching up the microphone. "'There's a ship four hundred yards away, heading straight for me.' My voice, as Stan Simmons, Aphrodite's skipper, described it later, was heavy with tension. For good reason, I added, "'If you don't hear from me again, would you raise the alarm, please?' He came back. "'What's your position?' Oh well i had no time to work out a position i spread a couple of fingers across the chart i'm about 5 miles south of ponta Arnell. in fact it was 3 but he could see me when he knew where to look the ship came on i tooted the horn which had never sounded so puny i thought about a smoke flare but realized it wouldn't make any difference if a lookout couldn't see me as i was floodlit by the morning sun with all sail up and broadside on then he certainly wouldn't see a smoke flare. I started to work out what would happen. A glancing blow would throw Largo to one side. Would she float long enough for me to launch the dinghy, or should I start blowing it up now? And then I saw a glint of sun on the ship's side. Imperceptible. But she was turning. The ship passed about fifty yards away. A man came out onto the wing of the bridge and waved. He just wanted to come and have a look at me. I sat in the cockpit with my hands over my head. It was some time before I remembered to call Aphrodite and tell them that I was all right. Stan said he'd been watching the whole thing. He said it looked very nasty. I told him, You should have seen it from here. That story was told over and over again at the many parties in Aphrodite's gigantic cockpit. The only event that prompted more interest was Stanley's sister-in-law sitting on the geranium. But I had my own excitements. I phoned home and discovered that I had made the back page of the Daily Telegraph. It was rather like Captain Hornblower reading an account of his own heroics in the Gazette. Suddenly I was a famous ocean-racing yachtsman, and I hadn't even been trying. What would they say if I put down Frederick Forsyth and pulled up a spinnaker? I resolved to try harder on the way back. I gave myself the target of getting home in time for my elder son's end of term. Fourteen days didn't seem too difficult. The trip out had only taken thirteen and a half. I might have managed it too, if only I'd got up in time for the start. As it was, I was still buying eggs when other people were rigging spinnaker sheets. I ended up watching them march away from me in a blaze of multicolored nylon, and the following morning found me becalmed, still within ten miles of the start line and totally alone. What made it worse was that I could hear boats only just over the horizon complaining that they only had a southerly force too, while the leaders were churning along at five knots. Not that I complained, you understand. Complaining about calms does no good at all. The management of calms is a very delicate business, and on the way back I had plenty of opportunity to study the subject. Essentially, there are two ways of dealing with calms. The first assumes that there is somebody in charge of the weather, in which case it's as well to show pathetic gratitude for the situation. Tug at the forelock, grovel a bit, and mutter apologetically ''Oh, it's too good for me, sir. Oh, I don't deserve it, sir.'' I find a stage West Country accent works quite well. Self-flagellation with the end of a jib sheet can be added in more serious cases. Alternatively, there is the varnish technique. This works on the well-known principle that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, more likely to produce a rain squall than wet varnish. By the end of the first week... Largo's varnish gleamed like something out of Earl's Court, and I was a snivelling wreck. And we still weren't going to get back in time for the end of term. I became utterly preoccupied with the weather, plotting maps I didn't understand from the shipping forecast, begging every merchantman I met for a forecast. I stopped this nonsense after the radio operator on a Russian grain ship informed me that I could expect a southwesterly force 10. He meant 10 meters per second, and he'd been looking at the arrows on the weather map, and they were pointing to the southwest. Still, it was wind, and while it blew we beat into it, and when it stopped we sat still for a day or two and got dragged inexorably into the Bay of Biscay. I began to play I spy with my little eye. It lacked something. In the end, it took me seventeen and a half days to reach Falmouth. There was one gallon of diesel left, and no digestive biscuits. I was reduced to reading the adverts in reeds, starting at the beginning. I was the second to last boat in. I'd have to rush back to work and the Daily Telegraph ignored me. But I had sailed 2,400 miles without breaking anything important and I'd ended up where I was supposed to. And I still had my hat.